So welcome, episode two of Bullhorns and Sirens. Welcome, Sam. Hi. Uh, on the spot there. Yeah, yeah. Spot. <laughs> I was literally like a sip of tea. Hi. And me, Tommy. You forgot my name, didn't you? That's no, I knew your name. Yeah. So, who, who is he? Well, just let me. Why is he back? I'm just, just coming along for the party. I heard after the first one, the record number of complaints. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so so we've reached, <laughs> yeah. reached 40,000 <laughs> Ofcom complaints from the first episode. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, what we're going to be talking about today is uh, well, it's called "Fail to Prepare, Prepare to Fail," isn't it? That's episode two. That's our title. And so we're going to be talking about preparing for the OSCE and also for placements, and then we're going to dive into a little bit about OSCEs and placements. So on the last episode, we used two different terms. We said OSCE and OSPI. Yes. And so I, remember, I think they're effectively the same thing, just with a different name, aren't they? So. OSCE, I think, stands for Observed Structural Clinical Examination. Yeah. And then OSPI is Observed Structural Practical Examination. Yeah. Same thing, slightly different terminology, no difference. Different and unis, probably. Yeah, so there's different unis, different OSCEs. services. Yeah. What was your most nerve-wracking OSCE, James? So I had to resit a musculoskeletal OSCE. So the first one, I thought, went okay. And as it turns out, it went disastrously. So having to reset, there was that added pressure of, if I don't pass, I might be off the course here. That was definitely most... Jeez. How many attempts did you get? Two. Did you get the option to appeal for a third? Or was it two and out? No, I, I passed. I passed. No, I mean, time. but if you had a failed oh. second time, would you have had three... Ch- I don't know. The, there was definitely the threat of, thank you very much, but you're off. But oh, I, wonder, wow. I wonder if there had been that little bit more... So we had we had three attempts at every Oski. Oski. Possibly, where, but we had three attempts of them, and but I think the third one was like on appeal of like the third second attempt. Right, okay. but you could always appeal. I, I don't think anyone. I think it would like have to be extreme circumstances to say no to your third attempt. Right, fair enough. Yeah, I I seem to do alright on Oskis to be honest. I maybe you know I'm a magician also by background for those that, that don't know, and so I'm used to like performing, sort of being in front of like a, a pressured environment. So. Oskies don't really bother me too much, but I completely understand the the nervousness behind the whole pressure of it and being assessed. So, so. I I enjoyed Oskies. I yeah. quite I quite like them because I I think I preferred that to the written exams and the essays because I I just I, I if I can relate to what the job is mm. like as in how the education links to the job, which you can with the practical stuff, then I found it easier to learn from. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. Even though I enjoyed Oskies. I still was super nervous going, like, realistically, I probably should have been sitting my Oskis on a commode, um, <laughs> <laughs> because that definitely would have suited my, my bowels better, like, I think we all agree that you definitely get nervous poos on Oski days. Um, nervous wheeze, definitely nervous No, wheeze. really? Nervous oh, wheeze. no, my favourite. Okay, well, <laughs> clearly, just, among, you, just me, yep, awkward. So, there was a guy on my tech course that, um, I'm not going to name drop him, God, <laughs> <awful> <laughs> this is going to be so embarrassing for yeah. And yeah, he was in and out of the toilet before the Oski. And, uh, oh, yeah, honestly, was... I christened those toilets at St George's. Like, with Lovely. Everyone, Pre-Oski, yeah. everyone now knows that, yeah. Just... yeah. <laughs> Don't like... go to cubicle free. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's the one that you walk straight in ahead of you. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, it's funny you said MSK. I'd say that was probably like one of my most nerve-wracking Oskis. Because so our MSK one was like a minor illness injuries module. And you had to do three... I think it was three different scenarios on the same morning or oh, okay. whatever your session was. So like one was like um, 
one was like a limb injury, one was a like a medical complaint, I think like headache or something like that. Or but then like the history and presenting to the headache will be lead you to a different a different diagnosis depending on which scenario they gave you. Yeah. Um, what else we had? We had limb. Oh, and then like uh, another medical one, so, like whether it was like uh, you had either that was it, either cardiac, respiratory, or abdo. And then a neuro exam, and then a limb exam. That was it. Those were the three. That's quite a lot. And it was, and like, it, like you, I think you said in like the first episode, um, in terms of like, you know, they, you need to know a lot more for OSCEs than what you do when you go and do these assessments on the road on patients because you're under those sort of that pressure of exam conditions, and like there are certain boxes you need to tick to to pass, and certain words and terminology you need to use for your assessments that you might use on the road, but you might not necessarily use that level of terminology because people might not understand it or it might confuse it and you know, bits like that. <laughs> Talking to the patient, yeah, the patella is here. That would be quite funny, wouldn't it? So, so yeah, I'd, I'd say that was probably a nerve-wracking OSCE. I think our most stressful one was probably our third year one. In the third year, so our final OSCE is you just get given a theme. Mm. So like our theme was tachypnea. And basically, your scenario could literally be anything that it's any condition that causes yeah. tachypnea. But I mean, like, so we had things from like uh, PPH all the way down to just like heat stroke, and then wow. you know meningitis. Like, so there could be you could literally be walking into absolutely anything. Someone that's just been on a jog. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that. It's actually lovely. <laughs> but like, honestly, and cool. so like you would walk in, and so we had like we. I think I guess probably most unis have this now for parallel science. But so we we have like two mock ambulances like set up mm. um, where and for this scenario you were solo responding, backing up a crew as the paramedic, and then you walked onto the back. You got your handover from the lecturer who was acting as the technician, but the technician was acting as the I'm just a technician, I can't do much for you sort of role. Yeah. Um, they do your obs, and if you told them specifically a thing to do, they would do that thing for mm. you. Uh, but that was, a, that was a very nervous Oski. Like, yeah. So, like, how did you, like, mentally prepare yourself before the Oski? So, like, the day of the Oski, it's, it's, ner- it's like, it's, I suppose it's nerve-wracking as soon as you wake up, like, today is the day. I think so many diff- fate is gonna... there's so many different factors. So, on the day, if you're first in there, you maybe don't have as much time to worry about it, but if you've got like an afternoon slot, you wake up, you have some breakfast, it's like, oh, gotta be gotta be at uni for two. There's a bit more pressure building in the background. Yeah, as, definitely. As well. I think just just you know, if if you don't know it by this point, you're not gonna know it when you get in there. Mm. So for me, just a little bit of last minute revision, just read through some notes. Don't try mm. and cram anything in last minute, because that is just disastrous yeah they always say like you know you see on like the GCSE weeks you see those kids on the tube like uh, just flicking through their textbooks don't you yeah. you're thinking mate, you know you should have been doing that for the last few months not not, not an hour before your exam um, but yeah but no just like what a, a little bit of last minute sort of yeah um, just, just touching on stuff yeah, yeah, yeah. just don't, oh can't quite remember that off the top of my head but let's just refresh that real quick mm. just I think not playing it cool that's no I mean that sounds like you, you don't care but just trying to, trying to play it cool, just, you know, right, it is what it is, I've got to go and do it, let's get in there, let's show what I can do, and hopefully at the end we get a, get a good result. Yeah, because I, I find that OSCEs, they're, I, I, I try to completely separate the OSCEs to the real world in my mind, and yeah. 
And what I do is I think of the OSCE like a script, like a like a play that I'm sort of performing. Oh, I literally do the same. And, okay. Yeah. That's yeah. Good. And so I completely separate the fact that this is a patient that might be sitting on the floor or this and it what what it does, it takes away you know when you go on the road and you're with a patient and you're like, right, I need to think about getting this patient out to the truck because their family's being really sort of um uh, you know, disruptive or something like that. In the OSCE you're not really gonna have that. So you know that your patient, wherever they are, is where they're going to stay you know you don't have to think about those things but i think that a lot of people do go into the oski and go oh you know are they in the right position well you know what's my environment like and things like that which is all good you know you might score a few more points doing that but do that if you're confident but for me i just go right this is my this is my oski this is my performance and this is the script that i'm going to follow so i remembered like in terms of the things you need to remember the oski like that was like my script like so yeah. like for like an msk assessment for example those were like my lines and I remember there was lines so I used to act and I sort of used that experience of acting for my Oski but the other thing that I did was I just treated it like it was a real patient so oh, like okay. I went in there yeah. and they're an actor you're acting in a way and so I just walked in and I just treated them as even though I've just arrived at a job I didn't treat it as this is like a surreal out of the real world experience. Oh, I walked okay, in fine. and I was like, hi, I'm Sam. I'm a blah, blah. Nice to meet you. What's your name? And I just did it like that. And I don't yeah. know if that was like, because I'd had that experience of already being on the road and, and working day to day with patients. Mm. I just sort of tried my best to, and I found once I got into that mindset, cause like I was nervous right up until the point until they said go. And then I sort of just let the nerves slip away mm. and, and went into that, yeah. that mode of, this is just another patient. This is just, yeah, that's it, yeah, yeah. And, and hoped that in, in within that, I remembered enough from that sort of script I built in my head to be able to recall all the things that needed to be included in that. I think my prime example there, so my, my third year OSCE, one of the OSCEs was a full cardiac arrest ALS OSCE. And in my head, building up in my head, like, you know, this patient is really, really critically unwell. You know they're going to be in cardiac arrest. But then actually, when you when you get into it, you've got that much to do. You know, you've got to do airways, you've got to do cannulas, you've got to do meds. There's that much to do. You, that kind of takes the heat off the background stress. It's like, yeah, 20 minutes later, and it's like, oh, it's done, right? Actually, That's I didn't worry about it when yeah. I was in there because there was that much going on that I needed to do. Do you find, do you ever find, like, everything you did in an Oski, the moment you left that room, you were like, oh, what just happened? Like complete memory loss of everything. Like, did I do everything right? Did I do that? I can't yeah. remember. If that I was the biggest that. enemy. Did we I say hello? Like, <laughs> legit, did I introduce myself? Did I get consent? Like, did I check for danger? Oh, yeah, like honestly, you just leave, and the moment you leave, gone. But then you, we made the error of always, and I don't know why we always did it. We always used to go to the cafe afterwards, grab a coffee, chat with other people. It's like I come along, and go, oh Sam, how did you get on? What was the deal? Or did you do this? I didn't do that. Oh, oh yeah, but Tommy, but Tommy did that. But yeah. did you? Did I, what, was that? That is the worst thing you. Whether oh. it's a written exam or practical exam, the worst thing you do is afterwards go and talk about it, and you're like, oh my god, I put A where you put B, and like that, yeah. that is just a downward spiral yeah. after that. And also, I think the the ALS OSCE specifically, or even like you know, for those doing OSCEs for their tech course and stuff like that, the ILS one, they're not. On the job, if you go to a patient in cardiac arrest, you need to whack the pads on as quick as possible and deliver that shock. I think that's like the, the main thing to do as quick as possible. But in an OSCE, they're, they're, they're not too worried about how quick you get those pads on and deliver that shock. Obviously, it has to be in a timely manner. But yeah. if you go there and you go, right, you know, 
I'm going to check for danger and I'm going to do, you know, you've just told me that I'm in a shopping centre, so I've got to think of these things. And then I'm going to do this and check for a pain response, blah, blah, blah. When you inspect the airway, you know, and add loads of points into all of these different things when you're doing the first initial primary survey, it's in your head, you're going, oh my God, I'm delaying the putting the pads on. But you're not going to do that in the real life. You're like displaying all of your knowledge to the assessors, which mm. what we got told is kind of the best thing to do. And if it delays you, if you can go, you know, I'm thinking about a C-spine injury here, so what I'm going to do, instead of doing a head tilt chin lift, I'm going to do a jaw thrust, sort of maintain the, the C-spine or whatever, then um, you're going to get more points for that, even though you're delaying the thing. So I know loads of people go into that ALS OSCE and they go, they rush the primary survey to try and get the pads on, but actually that's not the thing to do. I remember doing my, yeah. <laughs> I remember doing my PEDS ILS OSCE in first year. Yeah. And like, it was just with like a mannequin, like a PEDS mannequin. And I think it was like the formative, not the summative, like the, the one before the big one. And um, I failed it because <laughs> I think like in the stress of the moment, I walked in, did like danger response airway. And when I got to airway, in my nerves, I must have like yanked back that mannequin's head so far. <laughs> it like just went under itself. And I was just like, <clears throat> so his airways open, <laughs> like casually clicking the neck yeah. back into place. It's tricky, it's just been pulled from, <laughs> yeah. his, from the, the feedback tree. on my yeah. thing said, um, it said, uh, hyperextension of airway, critical fail. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's that's fair. Yeah. They say like sniffing the morning air. Yeah. <laughs> But, and then, like, did you get much practice? Uh, did your, like, uni give you much practice to do the OSCEs? We got, did... we got, we got bits. There was, yeah. there was, like, right, today we're going to do an hours of OSCE practice. Mm. But then I think what actually helped was we'd get together maybe away from uni. You know, or we're at so-and-so halls, we're going to do a bit of practice, come down type thing. Yeah. So we didn't necessarily have the kit, you know, you didn't have the mannequins or you couldn't do necessarily some of the practical skills, airways, candles, etc. More kind of the talking aspect, talking out loud for it. And I found that was a big help. Mm. So actually just some external practice, away from the university environment. And sort of like giving each other constructive feedback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, a, oh, you might have missed this. And it's like, damn it, yeah, of course I did. And it's always the same thing, isn't it? I always um, forget, I know it's not a big thing, but when you get the IV and I always forget to then pop the... Um, you know the the lift there. They put the cap back back onto the mm. top. So um, so and it's only a little thing. I don't know if you'd fail for that or not. But um, we used to. Um, so uh, St George's one of the good things that we did was for whatever your OSPE was going to be on your OSPE was going to be on. We used to do like sim sessions once a week and leading up to the OSPE. So like you would go and do half a morning, half a day, whatever of sim practice in the sim suite, learning specific sort of skills that you would then piece together and like, oh, okay, this all adds up to now what the OSCE's gonna be. So we have plenty of time to practice in uni. Um, but then again, and this probably throws back to like the whole in-service and direct entry thing, is on station, we were really lucky enough as in-service students to have a team of us that were all in the same cohort. And then we also had all these experienced clinicians that would take us upstairs to skills rooms on station and run through practice scenarios with us. So we were quite well sort of drilled in it. That's pretty um, good, yeah. Like even on your station, having like mannequins and stuff to do yeah. stuff on. And then you could even like when you're with a patient, like I know that I go all out sometimes in um, just properly doing an abdo assessment or whatever, just to keep up my my. Oh yeah, like on placement, every every patient you come to gets a full yeah like top a, to toe. Yeah, <laughs> like, every patient is an Oscar. Yeah, like yeah. Yeah. Oh, I only call because of a cough. I understand that, but 
is your abdomen normally this size? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you get abdominal pain when you cough? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I better yeah. assess your abdomen than yeah. <laughs> Have you brushed your teeth today? <laughs> it's uh, it's mad, isn't it? But yeah, like, and it's good practice because then you know you can in your head just talk about it, or even like talk to your crewmate, like almost like you're teaching them stuff with the with the patient. Because some patients quite like that, didn't they? Like when you're when you talk to them about it, like all the different things that you're doing to assess them and what this means and what that means, and then it makes you look better at what you're doing to the patient and sort of gives allows them to trust you a bit more. But you're also reeling off all this stuff that. Is like reinserting it into your mind. So yeah, that's the thing with it. Just repetition. repetition, tweaking it as you're going along. Yeah, repetition, repetition, repetition. 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 Yeah. Oh, let's let's no, like a uh, jump in yeah. CD. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. Jump and then in. like, and that I suppose that the practice then helps with the nerves, doesn't it? Because if you feel unprepared going into that whatsoever, that's just going to make your nerves. And spoil. yeah, and that is it. Is just key to like you said, just practice. Yeah. Like, yeah. The more you do it, the more you get it into your system. Yeah. I think that's the biggest help and thing you can do with Aussies. And practice with other people as well. Mm. Don't just always practice with the same partner, the same person. Because everyone works differently and everyone will have a different approach. So the more people you learn from and learn with, the more like wholesome your approach is going to be. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Thank you so much to all who tuned in to our first episode. As promised, we said we would run a little competition across on our Instagram accounts. Thank you to everyone that entered and participated. Uh, we chose a winner at random using a random number generator, and we can announce that the winner of our Pocket Clinician Student Paramedic Bundle and Bullhorns and Sirens mug is at paramedic.pending. To claim your prize, drop us a message over on our Instagram. And don't worry, guys, if you missed out, there will be plenty of other giveaways and competitions throughout later episodes. So before we move on to the next part of the placement prep and, and stuff, let's just break down what an OSCE looks like and feels like to someone who might not have done one before. Or okay. for the students who have done lots of formative ones or practice ones that haven't actually done a summative one yet. And just so, yeah, so because you can talk about OSCEs, but no one who's done one before knows sort of what the actual how it actually looks and how it's broken down. Yeah, yeah so, and I think anticipation is a big thing with nerves as well. Like I yeah. remember not really fully understanding the OSCE process and being like, God, what what, what should I actually expect? Because they explain it to you to an extent, but you're still like, I don't really know what it's going to mm. be like on the day. Yeah, that's it, yeah. So like on my Cumbria course, I've only done that ALS OSCE, and you go in, you know what it's going to be. It's going to be a, a cardiac arrest situation. It's probably going to be a shockable rhythm. And they'll give you a card and it says, you'll pick a card. So generally on all these OSCEs you get given like 10 envelopes to pick from. So you'll pick one and they all have different scenarios on. And it says, right, you've been called to a 50-year-old male, sudden collapse in the living room. Um, off you go. And they say, right, and so you go into the room. You've got your assessor there. You've got the patient just laid out in the middle of the floor with nice 360 access as they all are. And they say, right, what's your name? So I stated my name. And they said, yeah, it's being recorded so that if there's any discrepancies, they can go back to it. And then um, as soon as you're ready, just, just go in and, and, and that. And all of the bags are placed down. I know some unis want you to take in the equipment as you walk in, don't they? But I, my course seems to be happy with having all the equipment already there. That's probably a good point just to throw into preparation is know your kit. Yeah, yeah. Like always check your kit before you go into an OSCE and get used to the kit that your university used because the kit that our university used was different to the kit that we used as a trust on the road mm. um, and so like because we they were as a university they're primarily led by their 
main trust that they serve, not not us. We were like a sort of a secondary trust to them. And so their kit was based on the main trust they serve rather right. than us. Yeah. And so we, as in-service students, we had to completely learn a whole new kit and like their way of doing it. So yeah, familiarise and know your kit is, is probably key as well. Good point, good yeah. point. And then, um, yeah, is there anything else that you guys think that um, sort of with the OSCE, sort of what it actually looks like or feels like that might benefit those? I think you've, you've touched on it before and kind of it, it's not a real patient. Yeah. But you, you have to treat as one. Sometimes it's a mannequin. Sometimes it's, it's an actor. Just go with it. Just imagine that you, you know, you're going to your grandma or you know a relative. You know, quite importantly as well, and because the patients that are actors are briefed to give. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but so for our university, especially in our final OSCE, one of the score points on like the matrix was um, what was scored by the actor was how they felt their care was. Oh, and, okay. yeah, yeah. So they took the the actor's opinion into consideration for what your final mark would be do you think you know this person treated you well did you feel well looked after that sort of thing and they will probably feed back to the university afterwards how they felt as the patient and so it's even more so important to make sure that you realize treat them as a patient because oh, that's enough. what the actors yeah. are looking for that's interesting that's mm. responsibility for the actor isn't it you just think you're going in there with a cut arm and you're like oh no my yeah no I forgot about that this yeah, our, lays in my hands so in our big Oski in, in our third year that I mentioned earlier like that that was a big factor of it was you had to also treat your patient like a patient because they, they yeah. got to implement on your results of, of that exam. That's a good point. And then, you know, if we haven't covered anything or if anyone's got any questions, you can email us and then we will cover that on the next um, podcast about, um, about OSCEs. But let's move on to placements because that's a massive, I mean, not, not, for me, not for me, I don't do placements, unfortunately, but so this is going to be led by these two guys here. But, um, but yeah, what 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 do you expect? What do have you got any tips or what what do people need to? I mean, we've got know about the pocket clinician tips that we put up on. Oh, on the Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we put right. our yeah. our top tips for placement. We can run through them. Um, so we've got prepare. Make sure you get a good night's. Um, oh, I misspelled on the uh, post. Make sure you get a good night's sleep. No. Um, prep your bag and kit the night before. And then prep any sort of meals and snacks because it's just less things to worry about when you wake up the next morning or before your night shift, whichever way round you're going in for. And also, it's, if you've got some, if you, your mentor's got food, and he goes, "Oh, have you got food?" and then you're like, "Oh no," then you almost feel like you know you have you're to, they're going them out. out yeah, you're putting yeah. them out a bit. Which you shouldn't. I mean, you need food. Yeah. You need food. But oh yeah, yeah. But yeah, absolutely. Um, know your kit, so don't be afraid to go through kit bags and cupboards. Learn where all the kit is. Ask your mentor or their crewmate to familiarise you with any kit that you're unsure of. Mm. I'd say that's, that's a big thing. The last thing you want to be is like on the, like a big job, like in the rest or something, and your mentor shouts, "Oh, go get me the IO!" and you're like, "I don't know where the IO is. Like, I don't know what the IO is." Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you're looking for intraocular injections, and not <laughs> intraosseous. Yeah. So it's funny. It's funny you say about that. So me as a direct entry student, I'd never seen the back of an ambulance before. I think, well, except for once with with a relative. But obviously you're not focusing on. Did you not have any goals. like days in uni where they showed you here's the back of an ambulance? Unfortunately not. Oh, that's interesting. And I think a lot of unis now have adopted like having a, a mock vehicle or you know some older vehicles that have been taken off the road because you go you go into the back of the ambulance. That's your office. Yeah. You kind of need to know where everything is. So that's kind of key. Just you know, I know you go to a lot of stations now where stuff is made ready, a lot of stuff is tagged. Yeah. 
you know, maybe have a chat with the ready guys and or ask him into, can we get a vehicle that's maybe not been tagged? So then we can run through kit, what's in this bag, what's in this bag. Or just grab some tags from Make Ready, open them if up. If you're in a Make Ready system, I would say even more so, go and chat to the Make Ready people because no one knows your truck better than the people that make it ready. I am actually genuinely impressed how you kind of go to the Make Ready guys who have no clinical experience, most of them, and go, can I have this? And they're like, oh yeah. And it's like, you go to a random member of the public and you go, you know, can I have a three-way tap in the middle? Do I need to go screw fix or, or what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, sorry, my tap's only got one hole. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, obviously, how did you guys feel sort of first? I know you didn't necessarily do placements. Well, the first time you saw the back of an ambulance, you know, getting onto the station, what were your thoughts? Oh, my God. It's daunting because on my ECA course, I didn't see the back of an ambulance. So you went in there, I'd chat to my manager on my first day to sort of welcome me to the station. And yeah, my first shift, I didn't even know how to um, literally undo the back door. I'll tell you what, our first, so I was third manning, or third personing, now you're meant to say, isn't it? And, um, and our first job was this uh, like person who had um, like an asthma attack or something. I can't, can't remember the ins and outs of it, but it was quite an ill patient. And they said, right, Tommy, grab the life pack, right? Because I was sitting in the back and the, the crew was in the front. You grab the life pack, we're going to grab this. Okay, fine. So they then, we, we get to the job, they come out, they grab all the bits that they need. I didn't know how to take the life pack off of the, off of the shelf, because you've got to, I mean, in the trust I work for, and it's pretty much similar in most other places, you have to pull the pin, lift the bracket up, and then do it, but I didn't, yeah. I couldn't work that out. So I was there sort of lifting around and pulling these things <laughs> out. Trying to break like, a life pack what is going on? Old. Yeah. So I went back into the house, and um, I said, sorry, I can't get the life pack off the shelf. And they, they literally looked at me like, 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 are you serious? You can't do that? Another thing that I struggled with is getting the suction off of the shelf cause, and, and back onto it as well because that can be quite finicky, can't it? Yeah. And things like setting up a neb. You know, if, you, if you're, if you're like, if it's your first placement and they go, oh yeah, can you, here's some sabiotamol, here's a neb, can you set that up? I don't, I didn't know how to do that. I didn't get taught that on my ECA course and it seems like a very simple skill to us now but actually unscrewing the bit, taking that bit off. There's lots of different parts to a nebulizer that if you've never seen one before is, is quite difficult to work out, isn't it? So right. just play with those bits of equipment and, and that as well, I reckon. So that, that first placement block for me, it wasn't focused necessarily as much on the clinical stuff. There was an element to it, you know, starting to get your basic assessments going. But a lot of it for the first month was kind of day-to-day -day life of ambulance work. Yeah. You know, the ambulance craft, so to speak, I don't know if different terminology, but let me say, taking a, you know, a monitor off a bracket, what kit is where, you know, where do you find this equipment in the cupboard, you know, how does meal breaks work, you know, can you stop and get food, can we pick up a drink, if yeah. you, know, you know, if you run out or whatever. Yeah, or even like, a like using the toilet, I remember my crewmate had a, had a student and she looked really uncomfortable. And, and we had done about three non-conveyances in a row, so we didn't really get the chance to use a toilet. And she looked really uncomfortable, like she was in pain. And I thought, oh, is she all right? And I said, oh, are you all right? She goes, I'm, I'm bursting for a wee lot. I don't really know what to do. And I thought, how long have you been bursting for? And she went, oh, on the second patient that we went to, I started needing to go. And I was like, you should have said after, you know. So especially using the toilet, I think us as ambulance staff generally, we feel very obliged to use the use the toilet when we need to go and we'll happily sort of call up and go, yeah, we need to use 
facilities kind of thing. Let's go. So yeah, like don't hold it in. It's awful. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what's the? Th- is it we're number three? Uh, point number three. We need to do now. Is it? So no question is a silly question. Never be afraid to ask questions. No one should make you feel bad for asking questions. Placement is an opportunity for both the learner and the mentor to develop and learn. There you go. I've learned a lot from having students out with me in the past. Like, I have. I think they help keep our practice up to date mm. because they're still learning and pushing new things through and there's things that we still need to learn as well. Like all the time, you know, you might go to a job and use a bit of kit. You might use a, a traction splint for a femur. That's always the common one, traction splint and femurs. And then a student will come out and go, oh yeah, work a bit of magic and it's set up and it's like, right, we need to put it on. And my, my, what? <laughs> my old crewmate, I remember doing an RTC and uh, we had to traction someone and it was like dead of night, like a couple lit by a couple of street lamps. There was like a couple of patients, a couple of crews, and uh, me and her are uh, like looking at this patient. She's like, oh, "We need to traction it." Between the pair of us, we were like, just that moment of silence. And then she goes, "Oh, give me a minute." She ran back to the truck and she came back with like an A4 laminate that she'd done herself of how to traction the leg. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was it. We're we're there like just with this patient that's like. Uh, we're like it's, it's fine like just walking through this laminate of traction on your leg it's funny you say that about having a laminate having a prompt I don't think there's any harm especially as a student having some prompts there are so many out there even like paperwork prompts you know like with your history of any complaint and then you're on it you've got little pocket books Tommy <laughs> yeah, yeah apparently yeah. somebody um, would create a pocket book <laughs> yeah yeah so um, <laughs> you're going to slide in an advert there yeah, that's it yeah is it a pocket clinician yeah <laughs> Um, so yeah I was going to say with questions uh, I've got a funny little anecdote for questions we were on a night shift and my crewmate student said why does the end tidal CO2 increase in uh, TBIs I don't know I, I don't know the answer to that question she, didn't, she definitely didn't know the answer to that question so we learnt a bit from that and so yeah you know even like the really funky questions you're going to learn a bit um from, from, from that so yeah people like questions right point number four uh, reflect on jobs you attend a great way to review what went well what could have gone better how to improve how to improve your future practice um, and discuss difficult jobs with your mentor and their crewmate um, and always debrief when needed yeah I don't, um, think, I don't think you need to re- reflect on every job no no you, so you like, there all the time I didn't, yeah <laughs> it says reflect on jobs you attend it's like not like every single job but jobs that stick out or yeah. jobs that have some form of like newness or difficulty to them like mm. oh I've never come across this before what's this condition you know how do I manage it that sort of thing yeah I mean I've learned loads myself just from self reflection just going away you know oh there was oh, a little something there that I didn't quite know that patient was on a medication that I've never heard of. Should get Google real quick. Oh right, okay. Nothing next. So, mm. you know, develop your own ways of practice and etc. Yeah, my I had a crewmate, my most recent crewmate, and um, he literally wrote every single job that we did that was a bit complex or they had a certain medical condition that we might don't really come across very often. He wrote it down on a bit of paper, and then when he had a bit of spare time, he used to literally write a big reflection on it. Oh wow. Um, yeah, yeah, but. He is probably the most respected paramedic on our station. So I think that that comes with, with doing things like that, like reflecting on jobs. Fair. And every job that we went to, especially if we had a bit of time, he'd read about the condition that they had or we, he would read through the differentials of our, of our patient. And he, he was very knowledgeable, yeah. 
So, uh, point number five. Point number five, yeah. Uh, don't ever feel afraid to challenge others. Uh, so everyone's always learning. If you see something you're unsure of or feel is unsafe, challenge it in an appropriate and respectful manner. Um, any good clinician should receive feedback well. They shouldn't be upset by and, and obviously, like I said, give it in a respectful manner. Don't just turn around and tell someone. Yeah, I really struggle with this one because I, I hate confrontation and I think that generally the the ego of the ambulance service is very difficult to manage, sort of the staff-wise, and um, trying to give constructive criticism or even challenging, I find personally really difficult to do because it's nine times out of ten, maybe not that many times, but a lot of the time you, you create animosity between people by going, oh yeah, you know, I would have done that a bit different, or I, f I think that really we should do this, even when I'm a senior clinician on board. If I've got someone that's doing something and I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound right, I still struggle to say to them, look, let's do this because of the, because of the sort of aggressive feedback you might get from them. Yeah, I mean, I'd say it's probably hard as well when you're like in service and your crewmates are your friends. Yeah. Like to challenge your friends is probably quite a hard one. Um, but regardless, I think, you know, it's important to feel that you're able to like just because you're a student it doesn't mean your opinion is any less valued or no, important than that of the crew yeah um or or you know any sort of senior clinician on scene at the end of the day we're all there to learn and it might be that you read something in a textbook recently and it might not be like whether that's right or relevant but you might be like oh well i learned this you know do you mind explaining how that relates to blah blah and yeah you know stuff like that and i think it's about picking your moment to do it. So obviously don't do it there and then in front of a patient. If it's going to cause patient harm, obviously maybe do something immediately to stop the patient harm. But, yeah. you know, by all means, after a job, you can always raise it in a way that's like, oh, I noticed you did that. Um, I was taught this. Do you mind sort of why Why did you do it that way? You know, it, there's, there's nice, respectful ways of doing it. Because there might well be that your mentor or their crewmate has developed their own techniques for certain things. And just a simple justification, you're like, oh, actually, yeah, I mean, I really like the way you did that. I just wasn't sure if I could do it, and now I know that I can. I'm going to incorporate that into my practice. Mm. And, and it's, it's, like, it's not necessarily negatively challenging. It's challenging to learn. And, you know, I think I've, I know I've spoken to you guys about this particular situation before, but I'm going to open it to the floor of the podcast as well. And I went to a job, this is months ago now, and I was with an ECA, so I was the senior clinician. We went to a patient having a, a, a STEMI or a heart attack. He didn't recognise the STEMI on the ECG. He told the patient that it was normal, and then I corrected him and said, no, no, that's a STEMI. He didn't know how to manage it, which is fair enough, you know. Um, and then in, in, we got into the back and we got the patient in the back of the truck and he was technically attending, but I said to him, look, do you mind if I go into the back so I can manage this patient because I know, I know what to do. I'm just feel more comfortable sort of managing it. And he actually, this guy got quite angry and refused to, to uh, sit in the back. Um, so I ended up driving us to the, to the, to the cath lab. And um, that was a really difficult situation that I did to sort of challenge a, a colleague on, on what they were doing. And then to then ask them to sit in the, to drive, um, it was really difficult to do. And then he refused, he point blank refused. So I ended up driving still. Luckily, nothing, no harm came to the patient, and subsequently, he doesn't actually work for the trust anymore. Um, but yeah, like you know, in in terms of that um, situation, how how do you manage that? Like with that challenge, that sort of that particular. And I know that that's on him. It's not on me. You know, I I was doing the right thing for the patient, but 
you know, I it's, think it's really it's important management, to, isn't it? yeah, and I think if you can and you feel safe to, I think always raise it with your colleagues, your mentor, your crewmate first before taking it like up a level because it might just be that they're having a sort of a bad day mm. or they've got stuff going on in their personal lives and you know it's easy to say oh we shouldn't bring that into work with us but you know life is life and, and it's yeah, what happens. You still do, don't you? So I think it's important to raise it with your colleagues first before you take it higher and then if they're not receiving like receiving of that and you're worried it's going to impact patient care or bits like that then by all means I think that's when you sort of take it to another level like you know management wise or yeah or something or, or university like practice education leads people mm. like that I mean discuss your concerns with them when I say subsequently he doesn't work for the trust now it's not because of that that situation he did lots of different other things which I think caused a few ruffles uh, he ruffled a few feathers um, but yeah so um, so that's that's that Number six? Yeah, number six. Uh, so remember helpful mnemonics and other aids when taking a history, so things like sample, Socrates, OPQRST, um, and like things for giving handouts like Atmist and SBAR. Um, feel free to take any pocketbooks or aids with you on shift. All help is good help. Uh, we highly recommend, obviously, the pocket clinician. Not biased at all. Not biased at all. <laughs> yeah. History taking, documentation, and patient assessment pocketbook. It's got loads of... Um, uh, Acronyms, isn't it? It does, yeah. It genuinely has all of them throughout it. Um, and then point number seven, I would say uh, this came up quite recently uh, with uh, me and my crewmate. Um, we were on uh, relief at the moment and she was working with uh, somebody else and they had a student out. And I think as a student, you need to always remember the crewmate of the paramedic, you know, your mentor's crewmate will often have more experience than most and their opinion and input is just as valid um, and is important, you know, and you you, lot, you should learn from everyone around you. And so you're like, specifically talking about the crewmate of your mentor. So yes, that could, the like, that could be an ECA. Exactly, yeah. yeah. You know, and I think when you qualify as well, you're going to be crewed with an ECA or a technician. Most commonly now, it's usually a qualified with an ECA, so either a para and an ECA or a tech and an ECA rather than a para and a tech. And your your ECA, uh, you know, level of scope clinician person, crewmate, is probably going to be the most valuable asset you have because they're going to be the ones that look after you, keep everything safe for you and carry you through, through your role, essentially. Make sure you don't make the mistakes because their experience is going to be invaluable. You know, they, they, a lot of them probably would have been on the road a long time and, you know, may well be on their own progression routes as well, may well be on, like, student power courses. Um, so you should never underestimate or undervalue. I think, actually, as clinicians, you get drawn into the clinical stuff, whereas a lot of the time your ECAs, they're looking at other external factors for treating a patient. Yeah. You might spot something in the house that you've completely missed. You know, they might think... This was the thing I always found. I was all right at the, the clinical stuff, but then trying to get somebody out of the house. Yeah, your extrication, your detective skills. And then, ironically, you now work for the heart team. And now we're part. No extrications. And what we do. So. Hey, James, how are we going to get this patient out of this really tight space? Well, I don't know, but I'm good at the clinical stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's key. Uh, if key. only heart was made up of ECAs, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that that's like that. That was the top. I mean, I don't know. If we have any more tips on top of that? That was the ones that we like put. On yeah, like because I think they were good to go through, I suppose. But um, another another points that we uh, wanted to touch upon is um, what makes a good mentor. Um, so what makes a good mentor? So somebody who is definitely willing to teach, 
I think that's the biggest thing, is someone who's willing to part their knowledge, their experiences, onto a student. But it's got to be in the right way, because I could, I could, you know, talk about my experiences and what I've learned, and it come across quite negatively. Mm. I'm not saying I would do that, but obviously there is always that, there's that risk. You've got to be enthusiastic, you've got to, you've got to have an open mind, because not every student is the same. I learn differently to you guys. And people take criticism differently as well. So as we you might need to yeah. like yeah, learn about how they might take it. Adapt so. your approach to giving feedback. Yeah. 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 I think a mentor that's just that's been in the been in the ambulance world for a little while, knows how it works, is I want to say confident in their own abilities, but not egotistical about it. Yeah. Mm. Um, well because your your style and your technique that's going to later reflect on that student and how they develop and become a mentor. And so if they have a bad experience, you would hope that actually they're going to do everything they can to make sure all their students have a good experience going forward and, and bits like that. Um, I'd say, like like James said, it's having that willingness and I think wanting to mentor. There's no good thrusting it upon a clinician that doesn't want or have an interest in teaching or helping others no. because you're going to get a bad experience out of that. It's just a shame that I think a lot of trusts now are sort of putting mental... Like, to be a band six paramedic, you're, that automatically makes you a mentor. Yeah, you go on the universities um, like mentor list yeah. for your trust. And... Um, which is a shame because not everyone wants to mentor and not everyone is going to be good at mentoring. Just because you're a good paramedic doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a good mentor. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, yeah, so I think that's um, a good point. So, I think being patient is important. You've got to have patience. You can't, you know... You've got to understand that you were a student once, people get things wrong, and you're there to teach and guide. You shouldn't expect your student to have everything mm. right the first time round. You know, and if you're taking on a second year or a third year, you need to understand that they have going to have been taught certain things by their previous mentors before they get to you. Mm. And you're going to have to allow and accept that, even if it's different to your own style, mm. and adapt into that. So I think you've got to be very adapting you probably, I mean, obviously communication is key, your, your communication skills, being able to talk to people, talk to students. Because I, yeah, touching on your point about different styles, because I feel like a mentor takes their student on and tries to make them like a little mini-me. Yeah, yeah. And, and I've, them I've seen that before. And then, you know, if there's a slight attitude issue with certain aspects of the job, then that student ends up with those same attitudes. They carry the stigmas that their That's mental characters do. So yeah, even as a student, like, I think it's quite important to be open-minded about the different prejudices and um, biases that your mentor might hold. Because Which means as a mentor, it's probably important to try not to portray too many of your biases and prejudices that you may hold. Yeah, but that's yeah. difficult, isn't it? Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, it's we so all have those like yeah. jobs or those things when they come down the MDT where you sort of like roll your eyes and then if you do that in front of a student. What kind of things are they for you, sir? Definitely not saying that on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's true. So like, and then we've also touched about challenging, and this leads quite on on quite well. So your crewmate, your mentor. So you're a student, right? You're on placement with your mentor, and they go to something that they deem is a load of rubbish. We shouldn't be going to this. This isn't worthy enough for an ambulance. This is the kind of attitude that this mentor has. Yeah. And you go to them and go, oh, hello, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna do a set of observations. And your mentor says, no, 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 you're not doing observations. We're going to call this patient's GP, you know, or whatever, I don't know. And they completely dismiss the fact that you need to do a set of observations on this patient. Now, how do you challenge 
your mentor in that situation in front of the patient. You, you want to do observations on them. You know that you should do observations on them. How do you challenge your mentor? I think there's, there's a couple of different ways you can approach that and there's probably there's, there's no one answer to that. Mm. You probably turn around to your mentor and go, oh, well, you know, can I just do some observations just for my own practice? I get that you don't want some observations, but it might make the patient feel a bit better. I get a bit of practice out of it. Do you mind if I do that? That's quite a good idea, because then you could make it like, oh, it's better for me to do... Yeah. I, want, I want to practice my manual blood pressure. Or yeah. yeah, or yeah. I've already started now, I've taken the pulse manually, I might as well just carry on finishing mm. the set that I've done. Um, you know, Equally, ask the patient, You know, are you happy for me to do your observations? You know, Back to sort of the basics of consent and things like that. You know, because if they've heard the first paramedic set, the patient might already be disgruntled at them now and yeah. be like, well, just don't even bother, why are you even here? Mm. I think the other approach would maybe be, right, let's go with what the, the your mentor paramedic has, has said and then kind of almost switch to an observational role, observe what the paramedic's attitudes are, go through the job and then at the end have a chat afterwards and go, oh, so just thought, well, why, why didn't we need to do, did we not need to do any observations there? I was under the impression that all patients got observations regardless of what was going on. Yeah, what was your reasoning behind that? Is there, something, is there something I <clears throat> missed? Is there something that maybe I need to learn for next time? Yeah. You know, in the back of your mind you might be like, well, I'm maybe not going to do it that way. I, I will be doing a blood pressure or X, Y, Z on every patient. But also as a mentor, to receive a challenge like that, hopefully it should make you reflect on your own practice and be like, oh, actually, maybe maybe that was wrong with me, maybe I should have gone in and approached that job a bit differently. And again, I think that comes back to what makes a good mentor is someone that can receive feedback and receive challenges and not feel like so insecure in themselves that a challenge is a bad thing. Mm. Yeah, no. You've got to be true. secure and confident in your own practice and your own ability to an extent. Yeah. Does So does every paramedic go through the PPED um, programme? To, in in my trust, yeah. So to become a band six anyway, like part of that mm. process is, is to do a PPED course. Um, do you do you guys at your trust do a PPED, James? So so PPED in the terms of going to do a, a mentorship, a practice education, yeah, course. So specifically, no, they don't go to a university do a recognised mentorship course at the moment. They do an in-house one. Done an in-house one. Yeah, that's what we do, yeah. But I think the thing now is, is that universities are putting mentorship modules in their courses. Right. So I never, I never did a, a mentorship module of any description. But I think now it is becoming part of the, the university courses. One of the modules is on mentorship. Which seems a bit weird. It seems a bit, you know, I'm a student. I'm just about to start as a, as a paramedic. Mm. But you're already kind of teaching me how to mentor somebody. I personally maybe not think that's right but you know someone if someone who has done that I think it's very early isn't it like yeah because you're still gonna spend your NQP is your two years finding your feet and probably forget all about that mentoring module by the time it comes to you being a mentor I'd be interested to hear if anyone has been to uni and done a mentorship module what their thoughts and opinions are on oh, it oh yeah please write in and let us know that's, that's yeah I'd be interested there. to hear what thoughts no. are on that yeah because it's good it's like um, there's so many things that you learn on the, on the degree that it's really good, but then there's also so many things that are missed out that you that you could, will never know. Like another thing, I, I mean, this is for a whole another podcast, but breaking bad news. Who learns about that? 
No one. Very That's true. Yeah. yeah. You in the university, about, you're drilled for like for Rosk. Rosk, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Post Rosk care and all this. But no, how many never, Rosks do you get? Never roll. No. <laughs> yeah. you know. How many people do you have to break bad news to? Pretty much most of the cardiac arrests you'll go to. Yet we learn more about Rosk than we do the breaking bad news, and it's um. It's anyway, um, but yeah, so that's I think that's quite a good um, point of conversation, isn't it? Like all of the challenges that come with placements and the nerves that you get around um, the Oskies, and I hope that. The people listening to today gets a bit of an insight to two placements and OSCEs. And if you've already done your OSCE, you know, hopefully we've given you a few more things to think about. And then in terms of placements, I think, um, you know, hopefully the tips can work and you can head back onto the Instagram page um, at Pocket Clinician yeah. um, to look through those tips on, on placement. And then if you've got any questions, please, uh, you know, just email us. And I mean, also, you know, just in summary, make the most out of every placement you go on whether it be hospital placement or ambulance placement, get stuck in, don't be afraid to get involved with anything and everything that you can. Every moment is a learning opportunity. Um, yeah, no, yeah. 100%, I agree, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, we had quite a, uh, I, was in, I was impressed with the amount of questions that we got given from uh, the last podcast. So thanks everyone for interacting. Thanks for just listening. To be honest, I was um, I didn't realise that there's at least three listeners yeah, out there. There's at least three <laughs> listeners. So um, there was about eighteen thousand questions that we had to go through. No, there wasn't really. There was about about six. But anyway, we're not going to go through that. But um, so I picked out three questions, and um, I think James, this one is a good one for you to answer if you're happy to, um, as the as the the direct entry person paramedic. So, um, Amy from Bradford, that's near where... Not a million miles away. Not a million miles away. Um, she has uh, asked, I have had several offers from different universities. What do I need to think about when choosing which one to go to? So we touched, this, we touched on this on the first podcast. We did touch on it. I'm hoping yeah. that... Amy, covered... I hope you were listening properly to what James was now made joking, Amy. Go on. I'm hoping we covered, covered it enough. I think there's just so many things to think about. Obviously, don't be overwhelmed by it, but just having to think about where you want to be, you know, is there somewhere in the country you might fancy seeing yourself living? Some people see themselves living in London, some people see themselves living on the south coast, you know, some people fancy the northwest and the Lake District. See where you fancy. Get to the universities, you know, get to the open days, get a feel for the campus or the you know, the university itself. Have a chat with the the faculty staff, you know, the uh, the paramedic faculty staff. Try and chat to students, see what their thoughts are. The students on the course are going to be able to, to tell you their opinions, their thoughts are you know, in greater detail than anyone else. And just pick what you think is, is right for you. You know, sometimes you, you might think you are taking a bit of a gamble. As we know, gambles pay off sometimes. You know, I ended up, I got the only offer from, from Surrey, and I went to Surrey, and it worked out really well. Well, you met us, didn't you? Met so, you guys. You know, yeah. so, Can yeah. I jump in on that one as well? I would say... Um, a good thing to do is so each course at, per uni will have their own modules to build up their program so look at the breakdown of modules on the university website and see which modules you think you'd like to learn about because one university might for example have a module on mental health um, whereas another one might not mm. um, and so it's like what individual modules you'd like to learn about and incorporate into your practice yeah. um, and where your interests sort of lie um, and also, I was going to say, different 
plate depend on where your placement is like sort of what James said you're going to be exposed differently to different sort of incidents and patients and demographics and so for example if you're working in London your exposure is going to be so much more wide and varied working in a big city versus working in like the countryside and, and a more sort of rural area yeah that's very true yeah yeah and we've we, even we've got a mix of sort of countryside ambulances to sort of inner city ambulance services in between us three haven't we so and we've got lots of different experiences that we share but I hope Amy that answers your question a uh, very in-depth answer well done boys um, so uh, question number two we picked out I thought was quite a good good question and um, from Lewis from Brighton and to be fair to him he's 14 years old so he's got aspirations so um, he says how do I apply to be a technician in the ambulance service yeah, so I think, mate, if you're young, you've got your GCSEs ahead of you, so focus on those. You're going to need at least four A to Cs. I can't remember what numbers Changing that are, now. but they've changed, changed it. I think that's oh, like yeah. nine to sevens or something, but double check it. Um, so you'll need um, four A to Cs. Um, and is it five? Oh, is it five? Is it? Oh, there you go, look at that. So... Look at your GCSEs and look at what you're going to need to, to do to, to apply for that. But definitely need English, maths and science. English, maths and science. So focus on your GCSEs. Once you've done that, um, you know, you, you can't... You, to be a technician in the ambulance service or any role in the ambulance service, you have to be 18 anyway. So just wait until you're 18. And then uh, what you need to do is find a trust that you want to work for. So generally, whatever trust... Uh, I suppose in Brighton it would be South East Coast Ambulance Service that you'd want to apply for. And go onto their website, go onto their vacancies, or you can go on the NHS Jobs website as well, and then just see when they're applying for them. So they'll be either applying, I think uh, CCAM have emergency care support workers that you can apply for, or they have associate ambulance practitioners. So that'll be a trainee associate ambulance practitioner role. I'm not 100% sure whether you can go straight to AAP there, whether you have to become an emergency care support worker first. But either way, I think it's really good to get your foot in the door with the emergency care support worker that they'll, that they'll offer you around in Brighton. So yeah, you apply for that. In the meantime, Lewis, get some volunteering in. You can join St John Ambulance as a cadet. They're really good. Sam and I were, were cadets years ago, weren't we? We were. Um, it's a really good experience. Um, so yeah, join them. And yeah, NHS jobs uh, when, you're, um, when you're 18 and, and apply for that. Also, get your C1 licence nice and early. So you get your driving licence as soon as you're 17, and then as soon as you're 18, get your C1 licence, and then um, that will allow you to then progress on to working on the road. Anything else that you want to touch on with that? No, that's good. Cool. So, uh, question number three. Um, I've just qualified. This is from Chris from Dudley. Where's Dudley? Uh, Midlands. Oh, Midlands. the Midlands, fine. Yeah. Okay, sweet. So um, Chris from Dudley says, I've just qualified as an AAP in my ambulance service. When is the right time to do private work? So you do quite a bit of private work, didn't you, Sam? Uh, not a massive amount, but yeah, I, I do like event work and stuff. Um, once you feel confident with your experience, event work and private work is very different to frontline because um, you can end up being completely on your own, uh, whether you're doing like things like film sets and and that sort of thing, or whether you're just doing like local community events, uh, you could end up being as an AAP lead clinician um, amongst a smattering of like first aiders, first responders. So I'd say get your confidence levels up, make sure you're really happy with your practice and you're ready to take on that responsibility. 
Um, alongside with that, make sure you pick the right company. There's a lot of event companies and private companies out there. So make sure they cover all the things that you need. Um, people that provide you with the correct and appropriate kit, uh, medications. Um, I would always advise ideally working for a CQC registered company because you know that they have been vetted and approved properly. Um, not to say that don't work. some event companies don't have to be CQC registered if they're not transporting patients. So it, it's hit and miss. Look for reviews, look for feedback. Make sure they've got all the correct insurances that cover you, so liability, indemnity, um, all bits and bobs like that. You can obviously look at taking out your own insurances as well on top just to protect you additionally and maybe putting together your own kit if you choose. But a good company will provide you with all the, quit, all the, quit, all the equipment and drugs and all the insurances and they'll have a good medical director, they'll have all the relevant policies, they may have PGDs and other such things in place. Um, so yeah, just, just be careful uh, when going into private practice and make sure that you are ready for it. There you go, make sure you're ready. Cool. Um, so those are the three questions. Um, thanks so much for um, you know writing in. It was, we were really sort of humbled by the um, the, the response that we got, so thanks. Um, regarding more questions, keep them e keep emailing them in or um, uh, Instagram messaging us on the at Pocket Clinician or at Bullhorns and Sirens. We're sort of going from both of those. Or email address Pocket Clinician at Outlook.com. Yep, there you go. So email those in. Thanks so much. Um, so yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Next episode, uh, we are talking about uh, the mental health in patients and staff and trying to break the stigma um, surrounding that. Yeah. So that's going to be quite interesting, Perfect. so keep tuned. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Cheers, James. Cheers, Take Sam. Care. Cheers. Thank See you, you. later. Thanks. <laughs>